a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. The Comic Book Time Machine, episode 86, part of Ben's Marvel Cosmic Comics series, looking at Marvel's licensed sci-fi and fantasy comics, cover date August 1978. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Comic Book Time Machine Presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I'll be your host as we travel together back in time to 1978. The cover date of the comics we'll be looking at for this next round of Marvel's licensed sci-fi books is August of 1978. And the release date for these books, the -the on-the-street date, if you would, is uh, January, February, March, April, May, May of 1978. And the books we'll be looking at, I've pulled out. We have Star Wars, number 14. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, number 15. Godzilla, number 13. Man from Atlantis, number 7. And let's see if there's any other surprises for this month. Because we also have the Human Fly, issue number 12. And then, I guess it's not really a surprise, but then when we talk about the uh, the related Marvel materials that I like to wrap up in a single episode called Ben's Bullpen Bulletin, uh, that will include Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, issue number 5, from each of those. And actually, you know, I, I don't know much of what's going on this month as far as events within the books. But John Carter, Warlord of Mars, I remember the teaser from that one. I was excited about that, and I was teased by it. And Star Wars number 14 wraps up, I think this is the wrap-up, of a story arc with the you know Luke on the water planet. Uh, let's see. Man from Atlantis, issue number 7, is, I'm assuming, the final issue. It's not saying anything on the cover, but if I remember correctly, and I'm pretty sure I do remember correctly, this is the final issue of Man from Atlantis. And then Human Fly, I'm assuming, is going to continue being Human Fly. Can it get more absurd than the Wacky Races issue and the I'm going to choose to change my career and become a rock star while a man lies dying behind me? Can it reach those levels of absurdity? We will find out. I am going to guess probably not, but we will find out. In the meantime, I'll be curious to see if there's a single theme that that becomes a through line for each of these issues. Uh, Previously, I'd gone ahead and jumped in with both feet with a theme before I really read through all of the comics. But I think we'll wait until Ben's bullpen bulletin to see if there even is something that I can pull off. I got lucky last time because my topic was vague enough to really apply to almost anything. 
So in the meantime, I'm going to sit down, read through Star Wars number 14. I've got a mug of rock and rye, which is a Fago soda that uh, I don't know why, but I've started pouring myself a Fago <laughs> rock and rye uh, to celebrate finishing a project and a written project that is. And I just finished a, a comic script that was, was a large project, took a lot of research and so, yeah, I've got that by my side right now that I'll be sipping as I read. Uh, of course, as I read, uh, I'm not going to record myself reading. I'm just going to play a sounder and stop the recording, and that'll make it you know, easier on your end. You don't have to sit through listening to me slurp the rock and rye and read and, and react to issue number 14 of Star Wars, The Sound of Armageddon. So I'm going to play the sounder right now, and afterward, we'll see if the uh, the wrapping up, the finale of this Waterworld adventure will, will live up to the beginning. I once had a friend joke that Star Wars, the title, didn't make sense because there was only one war. And <laughs> my friend tends to latch onto some semantical things every once in a while. But, you know, clearly there's there's at least more than there's at least two wars going on in, in the Star Wars series. You have the rebellion in the original trilogy, and then you have the Clone Wars in the, the prequel trilogy, and then, you know, skirmishes in between. And and this though, issue number fourteen, Star Wars, uh it's war. It's war. And, you know, it jumps right in where we left off with Chewbacca attacking uh, Luke Skywalker and really angry and upset. And no one was there to calm him down that could normally calm him down. And it actually even starts out with eh, there's an attempt at humor here by Archie Goodwin, who is the writer editor. James Shooter was the consulting editor. Uh, Carmine Infantino and Terry Austin are the artists. Denise Wool is the letterer and Janice Cohen, the colorist. And it starts out with a, a joke. What do you call someone who fights an enraged Wookiee barehanded? Dead. Oh, that's an old cantina joke, they say. So they're captured, and Chewbacca is attacking Luke Skywalker. But outside, it is war. It is a war between the Dragon Lords and the people of the city ship. And there's some cool imagery going on here with these dragons, sea serpent, monster things, uh, fighting the, the, the sea skimmers of the pirates. And as they're fighting, I mean, there's just all sorts of, of cool stuff. Just it's dynamic. And, you know, people are getting thrown off the skimmers and, and they're trying to, you know, do, do battle. And, uh, Han Solo has, been uh, knocked into the water but he's also been captured by one of the dragon lords and so we're gonna find out what's going to happen with that but the pirates capture the millennium falcon and they, they they of course they the pirates that live on this water planet they have been making their way by causing spaceships to crash and then they're able to use the scrap metal to help build their armada build their sea skimmers and that and then they go down below into the water below and they've been getting plant life and building a giant pirate ship. That's a city ship for them. Meanwhile, there's these dragons that live in the water 
And there's these little tiny lizards that are all over the place. Well, it turns out these little tiny lizards are actually uh, the baby version of these giant sea serpents. And the, the, the machine that the pirates use to cause starships to lose their, their tracking and crash, it actually enrages the, the sea serpents as well. And the, the scientists who have broken away from the pirates, they live underwater. And they then are able to control the sea serpents, but they're losing control because of this machine that the pirates are using. So anyway, that's the main conflict that's going on there. And of course, Luke Skywalker is caught in the middle there. He doesn't want to be in prison, but he also doesn't want to fight for the pirates. And when he finally does escape, there's this nice showdown. Luke, Princess Leia has been there too. She was on the Millennium Falcon and uh, she kind of gets captured by the pirates, but she runs away and climbs up one of the what do they call the mast or whatever. And Luke Skywalker goes up there as well. And the mayor of the town is up there and he's, he's threatening princess Leia. And you get this nice heroic moment for Luke where he's able to swing across from one mast to the other, knock off the, the pirate mayor, And he drops into the water and rescues princess uh, Luke rescues princess Leia. And the, the battle is over and the war has been won and the city ship is safe once more, and they're going to be able to live in equilibrium with all the sea serpents and little tiny lizards and, and all is well. Well, all is well right now for that, that particular grouping of people. All is not well for, well, Luke Skywalker and his, his team of friends because there is still a pirate ship up above in the sky in space. That's right, uh, Crimson Jack, who he and his crew of pirates were able to steal a Star Destroyer, and they're using that as their space pirate ship is waiting above for Han Solo to come back from the planet because, you know what? He tricked them. He tricked them, and they are not happy. They are not happy. And so that seems to be the promise that we have next issue is showdown. Uh, and so after they've won, it says Han Solo is staring at the sky deep in thought about a great battle cruiser, which still may be there and it's master crimson Jack. So does this lift up to the storyline? Does this uh, provide a, an adequate climax for this water world epic? I'd say yes. I'd say there are there's still more answers that are given about the society that they live in. The action is maybe a little predictable and maybe a little cliche with Luke Skywalker swinging across from one one mast to the other, you know, pirate style, and also giving us a callback to when he did another swing across a chasm with Princess Leia. But that's okay. I mean, they've they've kind of earned this ending because they've given us. They've given me, I should say, an exciting run with the whole mystery of where did these people come from? Why do they have this society on a floating ship in the middle of a water planet? How did they get there? And and why can't they leave? And what does their society look like? I mean, we've, we've built up. There's, there's two sides, and one side is clearly the good side. It's the scientists who don't want to do evil things. The other side is clearly the bad side. It's the pirates who do want to do evil things. And our, our heroes get caught in, the, in between them. But it's, 
it's a lot of fun. And you have Chewie going on a rampage. He's punching through like the wooden walls of the ship, which is pretty fun. And, uh, you know, the rampage thing when he's attacking Luke, I wasn't really excited about that just because it just feels not cliche, but it just feels like something that doesn't necessarily fit, uh, you know, what we know about, about Chewbacca. Chewbacca in the movies does not act like or move like or look like Chewbacca here. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, it's it's just a little bit different. And, and it's just a little bit, you know, we were talking on Welcome to Level 7 about characters from the S.H.I.E.L.D. comic book who look on model but act off model. And that's kind of what we get with Chewbacca here. And, and that's just because they couldn't do the things with Chewbacca in the movies that they do with him here. And he is a beast in this comic book. He is a beast. So it's overall, I like this ending. I, I enjoyed this comic and it's, it's not having me think real deep about, you know, philosophical ideas other than, you know, we should do good things with our technology <laughs> and, and we should treat, uh, living creatures well you know be fine uh, be be kind to your fair feathered friends for a duck maybe somebody's mother i mean the it might be howard's mother who knows who knows and the pirates are almost but not quite mustache twirling evil but they have reason behind what they do not reason to be evil necessarily but they have good enough reasoning for me to accept that bad people would act this way because they want to they want to survive so overall uh, star wars issue number 14 feels like you know we're, we're having a war it's on this water planet which is fun because it brings us into a world that we haven't seen in star wars before this point now we've seen it in the 30 years that have gone by, but we haven't seen it uh, in the one year that's gone by in, in comic book time. So overall, I, I give it a thumbs up and, you know, I, I kind of save my recommendations for, you know, I, I don't recommend single issues. I, I try and recommend, you know, story arcs. Well, we've had three story arcs. Now there's the original movie. There's the magnificent seven stuff that Han Solo did. And now there's this Waterworld story arc, and I've enjoyed all three of them. They have tickled my fancy. They have caused me to get excited and enjoy these Star Wars stories. And yeah, you know, Force Awakens got me excited about Star Wars again. But this was getting me excited before The Force Awakens. And this, this old stuff, you know, I'm enjoying it more than the new Marvel stuff. Now, I did just record an episode of Gimme That Star Wars with Ryan Daly, and I'll play the promo for that after this episode is done. But, uh, you know, in, in, in doing that, I read an issue of C-3PO. That was really, really good. It was C-3PO one shot. Uh, I'm not going to give away too much here, but I am going to make sure I promote it here because I want people to, you know, if you like my Star Wars coverage, then maybe you'll like listening to that. And you also get to hear another voice that's not mine. And it's probably a little more intelligent. So I, I definitely recommend going to that. But, you know, the Star Wars comics that Marvel is putting out now, they're good. That C-3PO one is really, really good. 
But this stuff is is what's getting me excited. It's this it's it's just this fun space opera stuff. And it's not trying to um reinvent the wheel because the the wheel hasn't been invented yet. You know, this is before 30 years of Star Wars has has happened. This is you know, like I said, this is 1 year since the movie. And it's possible that they know what the sequel is going to look like. It's possible that by now they know what Empire Strikes Back is going to look like. I am pretty sure the comic writers do not know. Because I, I'm just not sure how the communication was working with that. But overall, great arc. So for the first 14 issues of Star Wars, I can say I would recommend all three of the story arcs. So let's talk about a comic book. Let's talk about a comic book that has made me laugh at its silliness and made me get angry at its mediocrity. Let's talk about a comic book that has taken me to levels of absurdity that make me just shake my head at the ridiculousness or alternatively laugh out loud at its ridiculousness, uh, you know, because there's two kinds of ridiculous. There's the bad kind that makes you want to throw a comic book across the room because the twists and turns that come through the story are they're they're goofy and they have no basis in reality, either uh, the reality we live in or the reality that is set up in the book. Uh, Saturday morning cartoons back in the day often did this. Uh, this is when they would have a problem and the characters are able to solve the problem through the sheer effort of just being the character who's there in the story. Now, maybe there'd be some lip service to figuring something out, but there's never any doubt that they're going to be able to do this. And so then maybe it, it it's just a silly resolution and. It, you just it's a cartoon and you can say to yourself, well, it's just a cartoon or you can say to yourself, well, that really was kind of dumb. Then there's the kind of ridiculous where it fits in the world. And not only does it fit in the world, but it's. It's outrageous and it makes you laugh, it makes you laugh from just the sheer audacity of what it's what it's doing it may not be that great but the mere fact that someone thought of it and expressed it in the form of a story makes you want to chuckle uh or maybe even maybe even you're laughing as you're wondering what is wrong with the world that this thing exists in the world of course i'm talking about the previous issue of human fly when i'm talking about that where you know what it paid off in something that made me laugh. It was ridiculous. It didn't make sense, but it paid off. And that's, I guess that's the two kinds of ridiculousness in a nutshell. There's the kind where you're just like, that's ridiculous. And then there's the kind where it's, that's ridiculous, but it's connecting with me and making me laugh. Uh, you want, you want that kind of connection. Well, maybe you do. Because 
when people are trying to go for that kind of ridiculous, often the reaction is a reaction where it fails, where we just are like, well, that's kind of, you know, you can tell they're trying too hard or whatever. But if they're earnestly trying to tell a story and, and it goes there, that's when it can be real gold. So what about this one here? I mean, this kind of, tends to be the question with the human fly is, is it going to make me angry? Is it going to just be mediocre and make me angry because it's not good or bad? Or is it going to be, you know, so ridiculous that I'm, I'm okay with it because with human fly, I'm not expecting any kind of story to actually, you know, take me on a journey of discovery or, you know, make me get really interested into the lives of the people who are there. Uh, there's 17 pages of story. There's not a lot of time. And that means it's, it has its work cut out for it if it's going to try and make you care about the characters. So this story, it's a, it's a simple story. Uh, it's a simple story that follows the human fly template. And, or template, I guess. So, yes. I did say there's a human fly template and, and there are two unfortunate elements to my statement. Unfortunate element number one, there's a template, there's a formula, there's a human fly formula for storytelling. I keep comparing human fly to eighties television. And there's a reason there's a reason I'm comparing this to things like the a team and Knight Rider and shows along those lines because they had formulas too. And so this fits right into that of the formula. Uh, the Incredible Hulk, it had the formula. Bruce Banner comes into town. Someone needs help. He tries to help them. Something happens early on that makes him turn into the Hulk just so we can see the Hulk, but it doesn't really affect the outcome of the story. But then later on at the end of the story, at the climax, something has to happen. He turns into the Hulk and he solves the problem for the people there. But because he's turned into the Hulk, he has to leave town. The A-team, they're running from the military police. They are contacted by someone who needs help. They go to help that person, and things look bad while Murdoch does some sort of crazy gimmick. Hannibal disguises himself and tricks people. Face is charming and charms people. B.A. is tough and intimidates people. But their plans only work partially, and so that brings us to the main battle where the A-team pulls together some sort of outrageous plan, usually involving things that are native to the environment that they're helping in, like tractors or watermelons or fire hoses or copy machines. I don't know. But uh, anyway, human fly has a formula. The second unfortunate element with that statement is that I've been reading this long enough to not just recognize the formula, but to basically be waiting to see how it unfolds. Like I start reading and things happen and I start thinking to myself, well, how is this going to, you know, how is, how will the formula be revealed? What's going to happen? What will the stunt be at the beginning of the story that he's doing as some sort of charity thing? And then after that stunt, what will be the actual storyline that we're meant to follow that's basically some sort of life or death struggle that's going to call upon his stunt skills. And sometimes it's spread out over two issues, like the museum issue with White Tiger and Daredevil and 
whatever Copperhead or whatever the villain was. He does a stunt out in front of the museum on a skateboard. And then you have the real story, which is Copperhead stealing stuff from the museum, putting kids in danger and Daredevil and White Tiger and Human Fly have to stop him. That's the formula. And in this issue, the opening stunt was pretty terrible. <laughs> uh, Human Fly, he is put on a rocket sled on some train tracks that is rocketing toward a steel wall. And he has to escape the rocket sled before it hits. It's a Houdini kind of escape kind of thing. But he has a surprise for everyone. He is not going to escape. He is going to adjust the rockets on the rocket sled so that it lifts him up into the air and he goes up over the steel wall. And then before it crashes, he disconnects his chair from the sled so he can control his landing using the rockets. And as I said, if I may just be frank, it's kind of stupid. It, and the reason it's kind of stupid is there's no, there's no stakes to this. And so when he pulls out gadgets and makes this work, you know, there, there wasn't any point in time where you're wondering, is he going to be able to do it or not? I mean, you're supposed to, that's what the audience that's watching the stunt is supposed to think. But these tricks that kind of come out of nowhere, just feel like they're tricks that come out of nowhere instead of it being something where. We know what the trick is going to be, and then something could possibly go wrong with what he's doing. And so even though the audience doesn't know, we know something went wrong, and we see him overcome that. I, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm editing The Human Fly, what, 30 years later. And so, yeah, big deal, you say. Big deal, Ben. You're, you're right. It's, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's par for the course at this point. Meanwhile, during this time, uh, Harmony White, who she's the reporter who's trying, who is told to write a smear piece on Human Fly, but she has decided she is not going to do this. And she's actually given up her job with the newspaper. She's told her boss that he can take his job and stuff it. She ain't working here no more. And she comes around the Human Fly's team. They're like, get out of here. We don't trust you we don't like you get out of here you you reporter yeah yeah you reporter get out of here and the human flies pr guy arnie he especially doesn't like her being there uh he is not happy about the stunt in general which is very interesting because as mentioned in last episode about human fly human flies real life pr manager he was not happy about where things were going with the stunts that Human Fly was doing and stopped promoting him. He's not happy about the stunt. He's not happy about Harmony White being there until she tracks him down and actually sits down and talks with him and reveals that she is no longer a reporter. And when he finds out that she is no longer a reporter and why, he starts to tell the story of his first encounter with Human Fly. You see, he used to be a reporter too. Now, he was a reporter who was clumsy, he was a reporter who was cowardly, and he was a reporter who had a stutter. And he lost his job. But he thought if he could discover who the human fly was, he could get his job back. Or get a job, maybe just in general. Uh, he'd be able to work again. So he stows away on human fly's plane. 
And on the plane, he actually does get a chance. He sees Human Fly's face. Now, he doesn't know who the Human Fly is, but he saw the face, and it's a face he will always remember. We don't in the comic as we're reading it, but he does. And then, as Human Fly is getting ready to jump off the plane, he notices that Human Fly's harness for the parachute that he's using for this high skydive stunt was frayed. So Arnie, who is this clumsy coward, runs and grabs a parachute and jumps out of the plane door after Human Fly. And it's a good thing, too, because Human Fly, he hasn't noticed this, and the parachute harness just plain snaps. And so he's now in a free fall with no parachute. But he sees Arnie, and they end up you know, doing skydiving things together, and he, he, uh, they, they connect together in the air catch each other and share the parachute that Arnie brought. And as they float down safely to the ground below, um, Arnie then gets a job with human fly. He's now part of the human fly team. Although it's mentioned that he isn't getting paid. So I'm not sure exactly how that works, but anyway, they land on the ground and on the ground, his clumsiness, his cowardice and his stutter are all gone. Basically, I mean, he's completely new man. He's he's healed. Yeah, you heard me. That's the way it ends. Okay, so uh, the thing is, safety check, eluding, torn harness strap aside, Arnie's story is well told. You know, he's just a guy, but he does something courageous. And for some reason, this story it reminds me of like a Will Eisner's The Spirit type of story. It's short. It's it's punchy as a character who is not the main character who is operating in the world uh, of the main character and managing to then help the main character survive whatever is happening. Now, if this was a Will Eisner story, uh, Will Eisner would have probably killed the guy off on the last page or something. But Bill Mantlo can't do that. I mean, the character who is doing all this stuff is narrating the story. And so we know Human Fly is not going to be a splat on the ground and Arnie is not going to be a splat on the ground. I knew that they were going to survive, but this takes us back to that whole idea of it's not the what it's the how and the how portion of the story is, is told well. Now, um, I guess who told the story? Well, Bill Mantlo was the writer. Jim Shooter was the editor, but Lee Elias has some very effective panel layouts. And even when the story asks for stupid, he does it well. But when they're doing the high dive thing, there's a splash page that, technically speaking, I guess isn't really a splash page because it's it's just a bunch of motion. And it's the, the two characters in three different kind of settings uh, floating through the air. And you get this real... And maybe this is what reminds me of, of Will Eisner is the way he does this because... It's not chronological in that as you're reading left to right, you're not seeing um, individual images. The images actually are crossing over with each other. And so Human Fly is reaching out toward Arnie in, in the first part there, but his hand is actually uh, covering up Arnie in the next sec section of, of where Arnie is, is reaching out for Human Fly. And so the way it's laid out, it's just kind of this whirlwind of time and space. And 
it's very cool. And I look at something like that and I just think to myself, you know, that is some good storytelling. And it, it makes me, I, I might've mentioned this before when I was reading um, Ronan by Frank Miller, it made me want to tell better stories. And this is another situation like that where it just makes me want to tell good stories and use that kind of storytelling. So, you know, Lee Elias, he, he's doing great. Um, and then rounding off the team, we have Frank Springer on inks and Joe Rosen on letters and Glennis wine on colors. So anyway, uh, we end the story where we come back from our framing sequence or rather we come back to our framing sequence and Harmony White, having heard Arnie's story is inspired by Arnie's confidence and determines that she is going to have confidence. She says, I wish I had your confidence and I'm going to have confidence and I'm going to win my job back. And that's when human fly and the other members of the human fly team show up. And while they were dismissive of her at the beginning, they want to help her now. So what can this teach me? That's the thing I've been kind of asking myself whenever I'm reading these human fly stories and really all this Marvel stuff. I don't always do this on air. Uh, and I don't, I mean, honestly, I don't always do it in my reading time either. But I, I ask myself, what can I learn about, you know, storytelling? Because that's what I do. I love to tell stories. And, and so what's different about this that actually makes me like this? And I think it comes down to, for this issue, it comes down to the character. I mean, they used heavy-handed shorthand to make Arnie a sympathetic character. But it kind of pays off. And when he does that jump and they're falling through the air, you know, it's a character moment. It's not a moment of tension, but it's a moment of character definition. and. It goes a bit far into the cliche and the instant triumph at the end after that one moment of courage that Arnie has. It's a little bit much. But when I was reflecting on this after having read it, I, I, I liked it. I and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, the beginning stunt was kind of dumb. But the whole real, you know, the, the, the actual conflict of the story, Arnie's character arc from his flashback and Harmony White's character arc from hearing the flashback uh you know i i liked it it wasn't over the top there weren't any dying rock and roll stars on the stage as you know human fly announces his intent to become a rock star uh, and there wasn't any utterly impossible action like the wacky races stuff that just felt like it was being made up panel to panel and didn't make any sense in the context of the story, it just was a really ridiculous story that it just, yeah, uh, ugh, man, that was so bad, so bad. But for this one, uh, I liked, I liked the Arnie's short character arc from his flashback, uh, informed harmonies. It's a nice, uh, it's a nice bit of, I guess, reflective storytelling, uh, in that their two arcs reflect each other. And that his story from the past is pushing her story toward the future. It, it's a nice, this issue, number 12, it's a nice little comic that has a little bit of heart. And that's what it needed. Now, it's not enough to make me recommend the series. Not at all. Um, if there is more like this before we get to the end of the series, maybe I would. Um, the, the problem here is that you have this, which is... You know, if zero is mediocre and five is super incredible and the negative five is super awful, 
you know, this, this, this goes up to a, you know, a, a two or three, right? Um, but there's some negative threes and negative fours in the mix. And, uh, you know, it's no loss, uh, unfortunately, honestly, and with all due respect to Rick Rojet, um, the real human fly, it's no loss that there's no collected edition. And there's a reason no one is really clamoring for a collected edition. And there's a reason that these issues were tucked away in the cheap bins at a comic convention. You know, I'm personally glad to have read them as historical artifacts. And as I'm, you know, digging through the dirt to look at these artifacts, there's been some moments that I found that I, you know, the hand, the hands are covered in dirt and scraped up from rocks and stuff. But there's some gems in there. But those gems are just moments and they are not defining characteristics of the entire series. So uh, next segment, we'll be taking a look at um, moving from the human fly to Godzilla issue number 13 and judging a book by its cover <laughs> this one looks like it's gonna be a doozy so this issue issue number 13 is the second part of a trilogy i guess the mega monsters from beyond trilogy and it's part two it's the middle you know, so it's setting up all the terrible stuff. It's 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 the middle act of our three act structure. And I don't know what to expect for next issue, but this issue seems to set up some pretty good stuff for the conclusion, which I only know it's the conclusion because at the very end of this issue, it says next issue is the conclusion. So judging by the context clues, I can tell what's going to happen in the in the future. And not just because of my time travel abilities. So anyway, uh, once again, uh, for this for this episode, for this issue, for this comic, I listened to Michael Gissino's Cloverfield soundtrack. And it made the experience much more fun. At least I think it made the experience much more fun. I mean, you can't measure something like that, I guess, because you can't replicate the same story. Uh, without the music then. So I, I've listened to the music and read once, and now I can't turn around and read it over again without the music because, well, every time you reread a story, it's clouded by your memories of the previous time. And, and in this case, it would be clouded by, you know, the music being in my head from, you know, just moments before. Uh, and you're also, you know, you're, you're changed by your experiences in the time since, uh, you, you just you can't replicate perfectly uh, experiencing a story the same because, uh, you know, reading is a dialogue between you and the story in a lot of ways. And and you bring to it your thoughts and your experiences and your emotions and, you know, your feelings of the moment, but also your feelings from the past. And, you know, as time progresses, you read it one time and, and then time has moved forward. And so you are you're a different person. This the story may not have changed, but but you have, you know, you, you're, uh, you know, even just rereading a comic book. Um, I'm if I were to read this issue once and then just right away, flip back and start reading it again. Um, I'm a different person. I'm now a person who spent. You know, when I read it the first time, I sat down in the chair for the first time and read. 
but now I'm a person who spent 10 minutes in that spot. And so maybe my butt's a little more uncomfortable or something having uh, sat there for, for 10 minutes in an uncomfortable chair, which this chair is not comfortable. I need to get a new one, but anyway, I'm, and you're also, uh, I'm a person who's been affected by the story already. And so the very story that I'm going to start rereading, uh, has already been synthesized into, uh, synthesized into me, I guess. So, um, yeah, so enough armchair philosophizing, uh, just, just to cap this little bit off, um, stories have power and, and they have power to change you. They, they really do have power, they, good or bad. They have power. You're taking in someone else's thoughts and you're taking in someone else's ideas, both fictional people's thoughts and ideas, and also, you know, the real life creator and his thoughts and ideas or her thoughts and ideas that are going into your mind or they're going into your soul, your brain, or I mean, they're going to you, you know, so good stories have power and bad stories have power. Honestly, human fly, those stories have some power. Poorly told stories have power because they affect you and they cause reaction and they cause connection. And the strength of that power is you know, determined by talent and presentation and simplicity or complexity. Um, it's affected by your own affinity with the worldview of the creator or the lack of affinity with the creator's worldview. And um, I probably should just stop there. As you can see, I'm passionate about the power of story and that's why i do a podcast about these stories and even though they're pulpy pop fiction type things i enjoy them and i guess part of this is exploring what i enjoy about them and exploring um what can be enjoyed enjoyed and and then at the same time exploring what makes them effective or ineffective and so in a lot of ways i am as a writer as a comic book writer and as a, you know, I, I do other storytelling venues as well with puppets and things like that. I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing these stories, but as a writer, I experience them on a couple different levels. And one of them is to explore what makes them work, what makes them don't work, don't work, what makes them not work. Uh, yes, I'm writer man. Um, so Anyway, that's enough of that. On to some Godzilla, right? <laughs> so issue 13, we're on the back end of things now. Uh, strictly speaking, by the rules of time travel, I really shouldn't know that this is the back end of the series. Uh, I shouldn't know this if I'm experiencing these comics in real time, that is. Uh, but I do. Godzilla last 24 issues. I, I know this. I can't not know that because it's something that I know in my head. I guess I could not mention it, but uh, I already have, and I like to keep editing to a minimum. So here we are. Issue 13, the Mega Monsters from Beyond Part 2, Triax. Issue 13 of 24. <laughs> so the story here has some interesting moments, and I'm going to say if you judge a kaiju story by the people inhabiting it with the monsters, there's some good stuff going on here. Uh, and I do judge a kaiju story by the people inhabiting it with the monsters. So there's some little bit of good stuff going on here. The setup for this particular issue is that two warring alien races, the Megans and the Batons, have been fighting a battle for ages. And they're in the final moments of it. They fight it through giant monsters uh, going to worlds and just 
duking it out. And the Baden, Badens, Badens, Badaens, whatever, they're, they're basically at their core white hat wearing good guys. And they are now in the middle of their last ditch effort to win the war, to win a losing war for them and save multiple worlds, including the earth. And their last ditch effort is to enlist Godzilla as their representative in the battle. The Megans who are in their core, basically mustache twirling bad guys have three powerful monsters left and they are sending them to earth to battle the earth's mightiest warriors, the Avengers. No, no, wait. The Hulk. No, no. Godzilla. No, no. Godzilla is still not even there. Uh, Red Ronin. Yeah. The giant robotic suit piloted by Rob Takaguchi has been identified as the, one of the world's three most powerful warriors. And sure, whatever. This takes place in the Marvel 616. But the title is Godzilla, King of the Monsters, although I noticed... It's actually just Godzilla on the cover of this one. And in Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it does say uh, just Godzilla. It doesn't say Godzilla King of the Monsters. So I may have the title all wrong, the official title all wrong. And I guess it doesn't matter, though. This is Godzilla's book. Red Ronin is in the supporting cast. So Red Ronin gets preferential treatment. Let's just accept that and move on. So moving on into this issue... Godzilla has been sent back in Earth just to help Rob fight one of the three Megan's creatures. Uh, the one that he's fighting, I think, is, well, yeah, it's Triax, the title of this chapter. And they, the Megan's creature is now losing the battle. The Triax is losing the battle just outside of Salt Lake City. And. Uh, yeah, actually, Salt Lake City's, um, I guess we're, we're back continuing the trek across America, which, you know, I like, I like that conceit. I like that element here of Godzilla in this American comic is going around through America, uh, kind of like, you know, J. Michael Straczynski's Superman Grounded, where he's going to walk across America and discover what it means to be an alien in America. Well, what does it mean to be a, a kaiju in America? This is what Godzilla is learning, and he is now in Salt Lake City. And Red Ronin is fighting Triax with Godzilla at his side. They are winning, which means that uh, the Megans decide to divert the other two creatures to team up against Red Ronin and Godzilla. So we have three against two. And I'm assuming that they were going to send those other creatures, you know, out to find, say, you know, the Hulk or the Avengers or you know, thing, thing, foom, or whoever is more powerful. But uh, I wondered, I think, last episode about Godzilla, if this would be a, you know, quote, fight a different monster in each chapter style of quest. But no, it, it's actually, it looks like this issue is a battle royale. I mean, right here, right now, the creatures are teaming up against Godzilla, and the creatures are Triax. It's a rhino like monster with a beak for a head. So it's still kind of continuing that rhino like thing, but imagine the rhino mouth as the entire head and two eyes on stocks. And then there's Rianne, a Venus flytrap style monster with a blade for a tail that is used like a helicopter propeller for flight and crawler, a multi-legged beast with large, a large mouth uh, featuring lots and lots of teeth that let him like grind 
the soil and dig through the earth, tunnel through the earth. And then when it pops out of the ground, it can spit out the, the dirt as, as a weapon. And I'm reminded of some of those, uh, those realistic artists who redraw monsters created by five-year-olds and they don't feel like something from a Toho film. They just feel like kind of a, like I said, a five-year-old's fever dream put to paper by an adult. Um, and I guess one reason they don't feel like a Toho thing is because putting a man in those seat suits would be technically almost impossible. But they do work in this story, this monster mayhem fighting through the streets of Salt Lake City, slug festing their way through buildings and with the good guys trying to get them out of the city and the bad guys not caring where they go and fighting happens. Destruction happens. It's well-drawn fighting and well-drawn and dramatic destruction and not a lot of big, huge panels, but there are a couple. There's one where Dum Dum Dugan comes flying in and his shield uh, flying saucery type craft. And he's, just so dismayed because Godzilla and Red Rodin have been joined by three more creatures. And and it's a nice, nice shot with buildings in the foreground to give us uh, some context of, of the size of things, the scale of things. And it's, it's well-drawn, well-drawn, but there's also well-written stuff going on here. There's a lot of character stuff going on. And for a 17 page story, like I said, when I say a lot, I mean a lot. Uh, first, you have Rob Takaguchi, who, as he's in Red Ronin and doing, you know, joining in the fight with Godzilla, he does some armchair philosophizing of his own. I guess I'm not outside of the theme of this book as he does this, but he remembers regretting that he killed Jetragar. But here he finds himself once more fighting to kill a living creature. He feels a little bit better about himself doing this. Um, at least he, maybe he's making himself feel better about it because he thinks the creature is evil. Although there are psychic instructions that come from the Megans, and they can be actually the, these psychic instruction psychic instructions can be heard by everyone around. Uh, they they can hear this, but through that we learn that it's possible that these creatures are just under mind control, and they're actually being forced to do this. And maybe this isn't in their nature. And they have been augmented too, with. Uh, with mechanical bits and pieces here and there. And so they've been built to be the ultimate fighting machines. And then they've also been, they're being controlled to do so as well. And so whether or not they're under mind control doesn't really matter. It seems to be a thread that's just kind of dropped and Rob doesn't really spend much time thinking about the fact. In fact, it comes right at the end of his, his whole philosophizing scene where he says they're, they just said that they're evil. And then he hears the voice in his head. No, they didn't say anything. They're under our control. And then we just continue the fight. But uh, yeah, with Rob, you got some interesting stuff that's bordering on some complex emotional twists and turns, I guess. Um, but not a lot of follow through here. It is only 17 pages. And at the end though, everything gets turned on its head <laughs> and, uh, that phrase actually 
is appropriate, which I guess we'll talk about later. Anyway, uh, second, we have Dum Dum Dugan, who he is ready to unleash all the fury of all the weapons of everyone who is assembled there, which seems to be just the National Guard. But he is then reminded that Rob is in Red Ronin. And are they going to really fire on everything if that means firing on Rob? And Dum Dum stops. Suddenly, his surly anger against the monsters turns to a new target and that new target is the commander of the national guard and he's saying you will not fire anything you will not fire anything and this leads us to the greatest dum-dum quote of the issue he says to that guy as long as that big red robot is mixed in with the monsters that's exactly what i want referring to the holding the fire and next time i give an order you're gonna obey me order you obey Understand? Now hold your blasted ding dong fire. <laughs> and he cows the, the commander, says, uh, you heard your new commander, men. Hold your fire. So Shield showing up, having their uh authority challenged, and then having their thor- authority quickly established. <laughs> and here, you know, kind of going into the theme of who does things and why, Dum Dum Dugan, you know, he values life especially human life. And he is willing to make concessions and some sacrifices uh, to do so to, to save a human life. Now, third, some of the more, more human character stuff going on, Tamara Takaguchi and Jimmy Wong arrive and they arrive for no real reason other than to be there for Rob's fate. And not even in this issue, but I'm, I just have a feeling that the real world reason to bring them in is so that they can be there so that next issue they can deal with the repercussions of what has happened to Rob, which is Tamara's brother. But the story reason for them being there is kind of dumb. It's uh, they're bringing a message from Nick Fury to keep all the stuff that's happening out of the moon top secret, which I don't know why they would come in the middle of the battlefield to tell the person who's command the commander of what's going on in the battlefield to not talk about stuff that's going on on the moon. But um, I don't even know if Dum Dum Dugan knew what was going on on the moon. Anyway, there's no real reason for them to be there. Other than the personal reasons, I guess. Fourth, the Baton, Baton's, bait, the Baton's, Baton's, I don't know. They see that there's a Megan spaceship coming and they are going to choose to, uh, they have two choices. Continue hiding on the moon and stay safe or try to stop the Megan's and risk discovery, uh, discovery at best. And I guess then destruction would be the, the worst, worst case scenario. And they are fully dedicated to their cause, which is fighting this war. And so in the end, their decision is to follow up on that that motivation uh, to take that, I guess, take that dedication to the end game. And that's sacrifice their safety and maybe their own lives to help the people of Earth and to help the whole war. And so they do. They fly out away from their secret hidden base and they damage the Megan's ship, but they also get damaged themselves and they start to crash. And the autopilot then guides their out of control ship back to their moon base and the moon base gets destroyed as they crash into it. So they have made the ultimate sacrifice in this war. And then fifth the fifth character thing that's going on here around the battle, 
like I said, this is packed with different things going on in a 17 page story. But you have the Megans who are also dedicated to their cause and they also are willing to sacrifice themselves and they, they do so, but they're doing it not to save people. They're doing it because they want to send an energy blast that will cause the three monsters to power up to the next level power rangers style and so uh they're already giant but they're gonna be made more giant and so they are willing to sacrifice themselves to win this battle which will allow them to continue um well allow not them but allow others of their race to continue dominating uh the the galaxy and they're also going to they're willing to sacrifice their creatures because the power up for their creatures will not only give them power it's temporary power it's a huge power up but it, then they'll die and ultimately it will destroy their own monsters which if they are under mind control uh it's this is a even has another angle of of sadness to it i guess because the creatures under mind control have no choice in the matter and i you know if they were mindless and then they're being controlled that'd be one thing but if they were creatures that would be you know tend to be more gentle hearted or something that adds a level of tragedy that i might just be reading into things but anyway uh sacrifice here it kind of comes up as a theme for me um you know and we've talked about in the past with godzilla being about survival survival of the fittest and all that jazz well here you know sacrifice is it's the opposite of survival. Survival of the fittest has no room for self-sacrifice on an individual micro level. Now, on a macro level, I guess self-sacrifice does help benefit the greater whole. Um, and I guess oftentimes, I guess sacrifice is motivated by that. But self-sacrifice is not a sign of strength when it comes down to survival, which is why most monsters and I, you know, taking it from monsters, but also going then back into, you know, monsters is kind of this idea just ballooned up and exaggerated for effect in the story. But, you know, most sharks, they don't self-sacrifice. They just survive, you know, and, and mindless animals tend to not be willing to sacrifice themselves, except for maybe they're young. And anyway, it, it's here. There's lots of sacrifice going on. And uh, that's an idea that is there on purpose. But because it's 17 pages and there's monster fighting to do, you know, it, it doesn't get all of the play that it possibly could have. Um, but it gets a little bit. And, and that makes this story a little bit more than just a slugfest. So the monsters fight and they actually the bad guy monsters eventually manage to cut off Red Ronin's head in the process of fighting, sending the head flying and Rob with it. And the head crashes to the earth. And when we see our final shot of Red Ronin's head, Rob is hanging out of the eye hole, hanging upside down. Uh, it's dramatic and it's unexpected. And while I clearly I predict that Rob is going to survive. I'm not sure, you know, I'm, I'm maybe crossing my fingers here. Maybe the repairs to Red Ronin will not allow him to pilot the Red Ronin anymore. Maybe we can get Jimmy Woo to take the helm. I can't remember what happens with Red Ronin in these 24 issues. 
which makes it a little bit fun for me because I have read this before, but um, I'm hoping I'm hoping we either get a much more mature Rob, and we are. He has moved beyond being the Kenny, uh, which is the annoying child character. He has moved beyond being that into something where there's stuff going on there for him and change going on there for him. And, you know, a lot of times the Kenny, the change that goes on for them is, I believe about monsters. And then at the end, it's I was right because I'm a kid. And here Rob has to deal with some stuff and grapple with some stuff. It's kind of fun. I'm curious to see where this goes, and I'm hoping it goes to places that I like. <laughs> um, so the monsters receive the power up, and Godzilla now standing in front of the monsters. They were his size. Now he looks like a shrimp compared to them as they advance on him menacingly. So here's our final moments. The Badens were on the moon, and now they're dead. The Megans were flying to help their monsters, and now they're dead. The monsters are now three times the size of Godzilla. And Godzilla, his best buddy, Rob, is now hanging out of the eye socket of the severed head of Red Ronin, which sounds a lot more morbid than it actually looks. But uh, Godzilla is standing alone against the monsters that will eventually destroy our world. And next issue is the conclusion. And here is what is promised to us. Next issue, the spectacular conclusion, action, drama, and rare heroism as Godzilla faces the, in parentheses, super mega monsters. So that's, that's next. And I mentioned well-drawn fighting. I should probably talk a little bit about the credits here. Uh, who did that well-drawn fighting and well-written characterization? Doug Minch, writer, Herb Trimpey, penciler. Fred Keita, inker, John Costanza, letterer, Don Warfield, colorist, although I wouldn't know it from looking at my edition, which is in black and white, Jim Shooter, editor. All told, I enjoyed this jaunt into Godzilla's corner of the Marvel Universe. These stories so far maybe could be considered juvenile, but if they are, they're juvenile with heart. And Doug Mensch has he's developed some stories that are varied so it's not just big giant slugfest and they have character moments so it's not just uh big giant slugfest the character moments matter and the character actions can inspire so it's not just big giant monster slugfest and once more and maybe this is because i'm doing a podcast journal so i want to go deeper than just the plot so maybe i'm digging in a little deeper than i would normally as i dig into some pop fiction pulp fiction comic book sci-fi there's a little bit more to think about as these two warring sides. This is, I guess this is the big takeaway for me is you have these two warring sides that both end up giving their lives willingly, although not without some sort of you know, internal conflict, but willingly give them their lives in the same conflict, but with two very different motivations. And I like this. I like this. I like it a lot. So for the next segment, we're going to jump into John Carter, Warlord of Mars, because Man from Atlantis is the final issue. So I kind of want to end our our uh, discussion for this ep- uh, this month of the August 1978 cover date uh, with Man from Atlantis, not John Carter, even though normally we do end with John Carter. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what's next segment. 
you'll excuse me for a moment before I start the segment. Just taking a sip of a nice, cool drink in my new favorite mug. And I have to say, I know we're talking about John Carter right now, but I just got this mug. And it's relevant to the whole Marvel licensed sci-fi thing. It's because one of the things I love about the resurgence of Star Wars right now, and it goes along with Disney owning Marvel, is that because Disney owns Marvel and Star Wars, and because retro is in for most, I mean, lots of people like retro, and because of the aesthetic of comic books, the Star Wars plus retro vibe comes out in comic book art. And as a result, a lot of shirts and other products have been made using Marvel Star Wars covers. And this mug that I have that I'm drinking from right now, it's adorned with Marvel comic book covers of vintage Star Wars comics the early ones um let's see there's there's a couple we've covered already in fact one on here is actually from the star wars we just did and then there's one from star wars issue number one there's the the one where uh han solo is having a shootout it's part of that magnificent seven take that they did and man i oh there's one from Number 50, you can barely see it. It's just Darth Vader's body that you can see from issue number 50 or 49, which is one that I had as a, as a kid, and I loved that comic. And so I love that, that artwork is, is making that resurgence along with it and creating products that if I see it in the store, I just, I just can't help myself. Now, this mug, I did see it in the store twice. The first time I had it in my hand, and I thought to myself, you know what? I don't need another mug. I put it down. And I showed self-control. And I felt very proud of myself. And then I went back to the same store a month later. And it was the last one they had. And I thought, well, this is my chance. If, I'm, if I don't get it now, I'm probably not going to get it. And So now I have it. And yeah, I think whatever I drink in this is just going to taste a little bit better. Just a little bit. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Star Wars. We're here to talk about John Carter, Warlord of Mars. And for this issue, actually, the cover, it's interesting because the cover says John Carter, Warlord of Earth. And there's John Carter riding. No, not horses from Earth. No, he's riding beasts from Mars with six legs. I can't remember what they call those creatures, but uh, he's got a sword and a shield and uh, the cover then also gives us this little blurb that says the Prince of Helium returns to his home world. And I'm very intrigued by this cover. The text tells me one thing. The image tells me something else. The image is very generic. I mean, that could be the cover of almost any John Carter Warlord of Mars issue. It's not very specific to anything uh, in any story other than there's beasts and he's riding into battle or leading a oh, he's leading a stampede. Actually, this could very well be from uh, there was an issue where he did this exact thing where the beasts were under the mind control of uh, the bad guy. I can't remember his name now, but um, he took control of the beast and and John Carter was just barely able to control 
one and leave the stampede. This could be that, but it's not. Um, instead, the story is something very different. So I'm expecting, uh, when I'm sitting down to read this, I'm expecting him to return home and have an adventure back on Earth. And the story that we end up getting is not what I expected. And in fact, I thought it was going to be kind of stupid. As I was reading it, I thought, eh, this isn't great. I got to the end, and you know, there's a decent ending to it. Uh, and then there's actually a backup tale called Tales of Barsoom, which I'm not sure how long they continued that Tales of Barsoom thing. Because um, the other thing is, I mean, and these are both written by Marv Wolfman, but there was also some bad news on the final page of this uh, the main story says next issue, a new writer, a new artist. But the wonders of Barsoom continue on without end. Be here. So I think we've we've just crossed the threshold into or out of rather the Marv Wolfman era. And the other thing is, I can't not know this. Uh because, like I said, with Godzilla, you know, there's there's information I do know. Now, with Man from Atlantis, I knew we were nearing the end, but I wasn't sure if the next issue was the end. I just thought maybe it was, and I'm right. Man from Atlantis is coming up as the end. But with this one, because I'm reading it out of an omnibus edition, I can tell. I mean, I'm in the middle here, and I know there were less than 30 issues. And we're in issue 15. And if there's less than 30 issues, well... We're in the back half of John Carter, Warlord of Mars as well, as well as being in the back half of, of Godzilla. So a little bittersweet as I read for this, uh, well, really for this, this whole month, this, this August 1978 cover date, it's feeling a, a little bittersweet to me. So anyway, the history Holocaust is written by Marv Wolfman. He's also the editor, Walt Simonson is the artist here and, and Rudy Nebrez is also listed as an artist. I'm not sure what the breakdown for the work here is in the backup story. Rudy Nebrez is the, or no, he's not. Never mind. <laughs> Forget that. Uh, John Costanza is the letterer and Glennis wine or ween is the colorist. And everything I said about Rudy Nebrez for the backup story, just forget that I even said a thing because I'm totally wrong. And we'll talk about it when we get there the story here is that there is a scientist on mars on barsoom who is very upset because he believes john carter has caused more problems than he has solved and it's just you know it goes back to that whole thing about does the hero create the problem of the villains or do the villains create the problem of the villains i mean the answer is pretty clear to me but it keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. And basically, when you have a hero who is so great, the villains must rise up to respond to to what that, that hero can do. Anyway, this scientist hates John Carter and what John Carter has done. And so he's created some sort of thing that's going to do some sort of bad to John Carter. Meanwhile, John Carter himself, he's not too happy because it's quiet. Too quiet. It's boring. He doesn't have anything to do. There's no way to, um, well, there's no, there's no enemies to fight. There's no challenges. And so he's re reduced to challenging himself with his exercise routine and to have, you know, bets on if he can, you know, jump to a tower. And as he's making a bet with Tars Tarkas and 
And then his wife, Dejah Thoris, reminds him that he was invited to a science exhibition. He doesn't want to go. But it'd be rude for him not to go. So he goes. But little does he know, this is actually a trap. The scientist I was talking about earlier, he's the guy having the exhibition. And he activates his science. And suddenly, John Carter finds himself back in time and back on Earth. He is no longer John Carter, warlord of Mars. He is King Theodoric of the Visigoths. And he is getting ready to fight Attila the Hun. And everyone knows that Attila the Hun killed Thea, Theodoric. I have to check and make sure I'm pronouncing it right. Everyone knows that that's how that battle ended. And so he goes into battle and figures, you know what? If I'm, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go in a blaze of glory. And I'm going to go in a blaze of glory at the hands of Attila the Hun. And Attila the Hun is a powerful, powerful man. And they fight. And Carter loses. But as he loses, he disappears. And now he finds himself in ancient Egypt. And he is no longer Theodoric of the Visigoths. No, he is now the one-eyed assistant of Anthony. Yes, that Anthony. Anthony and Cleopatra. Anthony. He is Antigonus. And as Antigonus, he is with his master and he is marching with their army, but he sees someone over behind them. Actually, I shouldn't say he sees it because he senses it, but then as he rides towards it, he sees that there is a Greek, one of his men, who is manhandling a prisoner, woman. And he goes to help her and he recognizes her. And spoiler, she looks like Dejah Thoris and he helps her. And then he realizes he loves her, even though he hasn't seen her before. She looks familiar. She looks like someone he has loved and he recognizes her as Dejah Thoris. And then through the power of love, it's the power of love. He is able to overcome the machine. It's a dream machine that was supposed to use his dreams to put him into situations where he would die. And this would kill him. But he has escaped the dreams through the power of love. He finds himself back at the science exhibition. And he's in the room where he apparently, I don't know if the room is like a, a hollow deck or if it's just that's the room where the energy is but he then bursts through the wall like bursts through the wall hulk style finds the scientist the scientist tries to shoot him uh he strikes him down with a blow and he says uh uh this is the the ending dialogue here uh the scientist talus says no it is not possible you're supposed to die in the dream world i created from your mind but if you escape your nightmares then i must slay you myself and then John Carter answers, no, Talus, you'll only fail a second time. You can't kill me. You were a fool, Talus. I might have succumbed to your mad scheme. But when Dejah Thoris appeared in the nightmare, you were finished. Not all the incredible sciences at your command could long block out the true memory of the woman I love. And in any time, on any world, Dejah Thoris is my princess. Now 
and forever. And that's the end. Uh, the scientist is knocked down with that blow. Dead, maybe. Who knows? Does it matter? I don't know, because Marv Wolfman is done here. I don't know if he had any other plans for Talus. This is a short story, too. It's only 13 pages. The backup story is, I believe, five. Yeah, five pages. And so, the, I mean, it's just kind of, it's a brisk story. There's The artwork is, is good. It's strong. I'm, I get a, a, a Prince Valiant vibe in in the uh the theodoric segment the the anthony and antagonist segment i i don't get as much of that that vibe i mean that's only three pages there and i mean it's just it's brisk it moves quickly and at first it wasn't what i expected because i expected him to be going back home maybe even staying there for a couple issues or something you know how he has to maybe find his way back to to mars his true home or something but um instead he's just he ends up time hopping and so I'm wondering, okay, well, is this, first of all, what's this, what's the end game here? Um, is Talus, did Talus send him back to earth and then send him back in time as well, which would be kind of a cool way to get rid of a, get rid of an enemy. But then he's time hopping into actual historical characters, historical people. I mean, it's basically a quantum leap kind of thing. And I'm kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm not exactly enjoying it. And then all of a sudden, bam, he's back and it's all a dream. And it's a dream created by the machine. I mean, one page, it all wraps up. And the wrap-up, actually, I, I I liked it. Uh, it made it so that the this short little story works. And the whole idea behind the short little story is something we already know. He loves Dejah Thoris. Uh, if you didn't know it from the, the previous, what, 14 issues? Yeah. Uh, you know it now. You know, he loves Dejah Thoris. And everything he does, he does for her. But now we know... That he not only can jump, he not only has great strength on Barsoom, he has the power of love. Yes, I now have another song to get stuck in my head as I'm talking about John Carter and, and Dejah Thoris. But it's, you know, it's nice. And it's basically the power of love overcomes the power of science. And he defeats the greatest genius. I mean, that's his Lex Luthor. There, at least that's Barsoom's Lex Luthor. The greatest genius of the world cannot defeat him. The backup story isn't great. Um, basically, it starts out with a splash page of Dejah Thoris, who basically her costuming doesn't need to be there. Um, or maybe it does need to be there, but in a little bit more. Um, she's drawn, like many comic book women, to be naked with just color added onto it, which, you know, that's some people's thing. Uh, and then the story is just about where life came from on Barsoom. And it's kind of like those old Krypton stories where you kind of see the history of Krypton or the, the history of this world or that world. Um, not, not just Krypton. I'm trying to think of other examples, but I can't really right now. So I guess I'm just going to stick with Krypton. Oh, wait. Um, Thor. Thor had some like that where it was like old uh, stories of Thor and Loki as young people or as as they're you know going through mythological things before Thor was tied to the, the hammer and, and Earth. Um, anyway, it, it's serviceable. It tells us about, you know, the Big Bang and the, the creation of the world. There's a whole page that's just devoted to the solar system was created. And then you get into the weirdness 
uh, about life on Barsoom, where basically this plant was growing and it started growing fruit, but then also started growing plant and animal combinations. And then slowly the animals that were coming out of the fruits started getting more developed brains. Uh, they came the plant men. And then from another section was a 16 legged worm. And, and then there was the white ape and the, the black men of Barsoom who, uh, I guess are the most pure creature on Barsoom, but then also the green man, the white man, the red man and the yellow. And so all these races, they all, grew into tribes and started to war and then they left each other and stopped warring and just started building their civilizations. And then John Carter and Dejah Thoris flirt after they've told the story and decide to go to their bed chambers. And that's, that's how it ends. I would have much rather have had a longer version of the time travel story. I mean, if they had done uh, if they hadn't done this Tales of Barsoom thing, they could have potentially got it in a whole nother, you know, five pages of another um, battle or war that he could have joined. But that's not what they did. And instead we got this and, you know, I just kind of read it and say, eh, whatever. Um, this whole this whole issue, this is probably of all of Marv Wolfman's run here on John Carter, Warlord of Mars. This is probably the lowest point. Uh, I really enjoyed everything. And this issue for my 35 cents, you know, as I go back and I'm buying this off the spinner rack, you know what? It's not bad. I mean, I'm still getting a, I mean, actually an extra page of story. Um, There's 18 pages of story instead of just 17. But yeah, I'm just, I'm not all that enthusiastic about it. And I'm going to leave it there. Um, I'm just going to move on from there, I guess. And next we'll be talking about Man from Atlantis, the final issue. That's right. The end of an era. Not that too many people would consider Man from Atlantis an era. Or at least an era of, of note. I mean, There's a reason I'm talking about these sci-fi books as the Star Wars era and not the Man from Atlantis era. So, we're kind of at the end of an era here with this issue. Issue number seven, uh, the title, <laughs> Mad Dogs and Dinosaurs. Um, it delivers on that. The cover promises, behold, the land forgotten. And uh, it also delivers on that as well. I will say, though, that there is one thing noticeably absent, and that's that it doesn't say from the hit television show. <laughs> Because the television show wasn't so much of a hit at this time, which we'll we'll talk about. We'll we'll talk about that for sure. But um, in case you're wondering, Man from Atlantis, uh, just brief overview again, was a television show that starred Patrick Duffy as uh, Mark Harris, who was the Man from Atlantis, a born identity type of situation where he was he washed up on the shore. And, you know, he had webbed hands. He had enhanced vision. He needed to breathe water he needed water every you know 24 hours to really to survive he needed to be in the water uh it was a tv show though that lasted one season and i've now read every single comic and have watched every single episode of the show and i i think it's fair to say that this is the only podcast that i know of probably that exists that actually has 
covered issue by issue the entire series of Man from Atlantis from issue one to, well, to this issue. So getting into this issue, um, clearly when they were creating the issue, when they were writing and drawing and, and finishing the actual story, they were not anticipating that this was the final issue of this series. Uh, although in the letters page, I mean, previously in the letters page, we knew that the show had been canceled. Uh, they knew the show had been canceled and I think they might've known the writing was on the wall, but even then that was a month ago in publishing terms. And, you know, these books are created in, in order where you have the writer writes it and then it goes to the artist who draws it. And then it goes to an inker who inks it. And then a colorist who colors it and a letter who letters it. And then, all of that is put together with then the the ad copy and and the text pages, and so by the time they had started on this, you know, I I would assume that they were working on this with the story anyway, thinking that the TV show was still continuing, but uh, by the time that all that stuff was packaged together, and then they get ready to do the the letters column, which is still I mean. Uh, the letters column, usually letters, you know, they're three months old. Uh, and so you'll have an issue come out, and then three months later, you'll get uh, some feedback on that issue. In fact, the, the issue that they have feedback from in this particular comic is issue number three. And But there's it takes time for the letters to get in. It takes time for them to, you know, like I said, package this all so it can be printed. But when they went to print with this, they knew. They knew. In fact, here's what they say. By now, you know, if you read Man from Atlantis number three, although I don't know why that says number three, uh, probably they meant number six, but, you know, a little, little typo here. Uh, this is Marvel's last to deal with the adventures of Mark Harris. We here at the bullpen regret the decision to cancel as much as we're sure you do. It was a decision that was forced on us by circumstances, not sales. And we're still hoping that the success of the comic itself will be proven by an upsurge of letters from all you concerned with the, all you concerned Atlantis fans out there. It's a funny thing, the demise of a book. Many of us put in quite a lot of time, energy, and love to its creation. We borrowed the original stimulus from the TV show, to be sure, but we also invested much of our own concern in the mag. And we think it showed. Man from Atlantis may be gone, then again, it may not. Your mail can still change that, and so can sales figures. When we've yet to receive, uh, which we've yet to receive, even on, on Man from Atlantis number one, Mark Harris may be gone from Marveldom, but Undersea Adventures are in the works on another great mag. Even as we write this, what do we call it? Eulogy. But uh, be that as it may, there's still one thing that remains to be done, and that's to thank all the people who helped bring you Man from Atlantis. For the few short months of, his, of its existence, there are too many names to list them all, but we can certainly spare space to express our, expreci our appreciation to fearless Frank Robbins and fun-loving Frank Springer. Then there's Janice Cohen, Archie Goodwin, Jim Shooter, Ralph Macchio. Last but not least, we have to say a word of thanks to Mary Jo Duffy, who cared so much that it hurt. And we have to express our heartfelt gratitude to you, true believers, who stuck with us, who wrote in, who plunked down your 35 cents to show us we were doing good. Thanks, people. Thanks a million. Bill Mantlow. And, yeah, I mean, again, going into that production idea, this is issue number seven. 
And so comics would stay on the shelf for, you know, three and four months before there would be any kind of returns thing with, with the stripped covers or whatever they would do. And so <laughs> by the time they were getting ready to, you know, they were doing this final packaging to send this to print, they still didn't know how well issue number one had sold. So, I mean, clearly this was, was canceled uh, because the show had been canceled. And I don't know if it was a, a deal thing where the people who owned the rights to Man from Atlantis were just like, we're not going to mess with this anymore. And so since we're done with it, you're done with it. Or if it was Marvel itself saying, or, you know, maybe some of the higher ups there saying, look, the, the show is going away. Why would we keep going with the comic book even, you know, with the, with the show not, a, not even a thing anymore? Uh, not that that really matters. I mean, they were doing that Logan's Run comic. The movie was out and then it was gone, but the comic was was still there. And uh, the same thing with 2001. I mean, it's not like you have to have necessarily an active living original franchise to to build the comic on. It doesn't have to be around, especially if you can find an audience for it. So, I mean, there was some in my opinion, there was some behind the scenes stuff going on here beyond just readership and is it catching on are the marvels are the marvel zombies actually reading this are they do they care about this is it too much of an aquaman or a submariner ripoff and uh or does the the television show itself have the audience that can sustain the comic book to continue with the adventures and real quick i i do want to mention who was behind creating this issue uh bill mantlow was the story writer he also wrote that that blurb that i read frank robbins who was mentioned in the in the blurb was the penciler frank springer is the anchor uh jay costanza the letterist janice cohen the colors and jim shooter the editor and you know this story is one that honestly it was weird when i was reading this uh it was weird because of the reactions I was having. Uh, the story itself has Mark Harris still at the the uh, the jungle world at the top of the earth. Um, you know, one of those hidden hidden uh, oasises where there's uh, dinosaurs, and you know, it's been hidden from modern man, and so dinosaurs have been permitted to continue existing there, and. Uh, Mark Harris is there with this redheaded uh, barbarian woman who I assumed was actually a barbarian who you know survived along with the dinosaurs. Maybe her civilization did. Turns out she's actually the daughter of a scientist who was on a an expedition up there, and they the the people that ex the expedition were were killed by a dinosaur that um, was causing trouble because they were right near the oasis. They're right near that hidden world. And they didn't realize uh, until too late that the dinosaur was coming and it, they killed it, but it falls on the dome where they were living and everyone was dead except for this girl and her two dogs who were given the voice modulators that they used. That, so when at the end of last issue, there were the two talking dogs and I was just kind of, what in the world? Well, it turns out the scientist from Up uh, gave this scientist lessons, and uh, he, he created these things that allowed the dogs to vocalize and talk. And so they've been her companions ever since then, helping her to get through the cold of, of the Arctic and get to that warm uh, jungle area. 
So Mark Harris and this woman, they come up from the ruin, the ruins of Atlantis that he, or they could be the ruins of Atlantis where she's been living and they cause a dinosaur stampede. And you know, there's some ridiculous moments in here, but they're good. Ridiculous. They aren't the bad kind of ridiculous. Uh, we find out that the, um, the woman who has been Scorba's, uh, partner, um, right hand person, um, I don't know what, what I would call her because she showed up in the last, not last issue. Was it last issue? Last time when she showed up, it was just kind of weird. It was just kind of this kind of, uh, well, um, racist stereotype of, of the, uh, the Asian woman uh, who's there. And just weird, weird for her to show up like that. And she uh, she's in here. It turns out it gets weirder because... They, uh, she's actually sisters with this redheaded Red Sonia type woman, and it's just bizarre. And so, the, even their 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 reunion is just so quick and weird and bizarre. But then, as I'm reading along, they they finish with Scorba. The dogs attack him, and they got him down. And and so Mark Harris says, you know, we're we're kind of done here. I need to go back to where I belong. And so he goes back to those. Those, the ruined city, uh, the underwater city that could be Atlantis. And he looks around, and it's really poignant. It's really poignant and, and a little bit uh, melancholy moment. And he's trying to decide, you know, should I stay here? Should I try and find out, are these my people? And then there's a splash page, actually a literal <laughs> splash page, because he does dive into water in that but he, he says this is not my world and perhaps there never will be a place that i can call home and you know so then he's going to return to the uh the cetacean and okay so that brings us to the last you know that's page 27 of the issue but i want to I'm, I'm estimating here but page about 15 of the story i think there's 70 pages to the story and sure okay great you know what i actually i like this uh and if that had been the end, him returning to the cetacean and, and just ruminating about how my life is, you know, here now and I'm just going to return to it. What a great ending to this series. You know, just kind of a, I'm returning back. My home is there now. I'm not going to worry because there is no one else here. Maybe even they could, they, they, Okay, when the the TV show was going on, they couldn't give any answers in the comic book to you know his origins, and so they had to kind of leave it kind of vague like this. But the the vagueness of it really fit nicely for me. I really like the way that pans out, and I actually found myself having an emotional experience reading it. I wasn't in tears or anything. I wasn't you know wiping away any eye sweat from my eyeballs, but I I liked what I was reading and I so we get get through this kind of weird adventure where they you know win the day with a dinosaur stampede and then talking dogs jump on the bad guy and and then we get this kind of melancholy emotional moment where he's walking through this empty ruined city that could be the only remains of his people and then he goes back to the cetacean and finds a court jester who has turned everyone on the submarine into 
children who are playing with toys and talking like five-year-olds. So he, he comes up and he says, oh, they don't even monitor my approach. Still, I can operate the emergency airlock manually and gain entrance without help from the, inside the ship. Where is everyone? Laughter from the bridge. And so then the, the final splash page is uh, him stepping onto the bridge and saying, Elizabeth, Jomo, CW, what is going on here? What are you all doing? Playing, Malky. Want to join in? Don't even ask, Jomo. Mark's such a drip. Be careful, Widobis. You're knocking over my blocks. And then there's this court jester-looking clowny guy. Not a clown. He has a, he has a domino mask, but no, no makeup. But he has pointy ears. He says, ah, delightful kitties. Glad to see you having such a dandy time. But let's see if, Mark, if we can get Mark to play the game by my rules, of course. Mary's rules. And then it says... <laughs> I hate it when they do this. Marvel, when they would get a cancellation, they would keep the copy, but just add a little bit. So it says, be here, you'll die laughing. Nursery. So that's our teaser for the next issue that never happened. And then it says, see letters page for an important Man from Atlantis announcement, which is the cancellation. Why did they have to include this last page? They knew they were being canceled. They could have done a pinup and said, see the letters page for an important announcement. I mean, they could have stopped right there. Just change a little bit of the dialogue. <laughs> they changed a little bit on the last page to say, see the letters page for an important announcement. They could have changed some of the dialogue on the previous page where he's just swimming up to the submarine, getting into the submarine, and just say, you know, this is, this is my home now. And then a splash page of him and Elizabeth or something like that. But no, they do this. And it's so stupid. I hate it. I hate that splash page. Now, there's an episode of the show that has a, an elf-like character played by um, Pat Morita. Yeah, uh, Al from Happy Days and Mr. Miyagi from Karate Kid, where he is an elf character that whenever he gets in contact with someone, they want to play games and he just wants to play games. He's not evil, uh, but as he's going around playing his games, he has no concern for anyone's safety and people are getting hurt because they're doing things like jumping off the, the mast of a boat and, you know, almost drowning and, and things like that. But for him, it's all fun and games. And, and then he realizes when they take him to visit the person who f jumped uh, in the hospital, they, they take him to visit in the hospital and he realizes he's been hurting people and he wants to stop. He doesn't want to do anything more, but um, I don't know if this is meant to be some sort of tie into that because the characters are acting very similar to the way the characters acted in that episode. Um, so maybe this is another person from that world or something. I don't know. And I don't care. I hate this page. I hate it, but the the stuff leading up to that, you know, it's it's the right blend of absurdity and okay, the talking dogs that doesn't that doesn't help, but uh, that that poignancy of him was I one of them? Will I ever know? Very interesting to me. So you have this TV series where. It does. It goes in the same places as this. I mean, I talked about I'm pretty sure I talked about the episode where it had imaginary water that he's trying to fight through to get through. It had that Pat Morita episode um, there where there were some pretty dumb episodes in there. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones right now, but I, I can't off the top of my head. Um, oh, yes, there was the. Okay, this this is where it does get kind of stupid. There's there's the sci-fi tropes, but there's the they they have a western episode, which 
you know what? Uh, almost every sci-fi show has to do a Western episode. Every sci-fi show also usually has to do some sort of evil twin episode. And it's just for, for Man from Atlantis, they did both. He is, <laughs> he is, he plays his evil twin who is a cowboy who washed up on the shore of this place that's still stuck in the 1800s Old West. And then he goes and joins, you know, the people there. And yeah, and it turns out it actually is a twin brother who washed up on shore just like him with no memory. Uh, only he cut off his webbed fingers and and then at the end, you know, it resets. And so Mark goes back and his his evil twin becomes good and stays there. And there's this really twisted thing right at the beginning. There's this implied threat of basically rape. And then at the end, this person that he implied that threat to and him become a couple while Mark Harris leaves them. And it's just weird. There's an episode called The Naked Montague. Which was also so stupid because he falls into another world. And when he would go through these portals to these other worlds, um, you know, that, that would have been a kind of cool thing to maybe pull into and do like a, a Stargate kind of thing. But it's underwater. It's like these all these portals leading to these other other worlds, alien cultures and stuff. But instead of going to actual alien cultures, he goes to a place where there's an alien played by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. That's the alien, and they're out in the desert. Or the Western world, which they didn't have them go through a portal to get there, but they could have. I mean, it, if they were going to do, like, underwater Stargate kind of thing. Um, the naked Montague, though, he goes to a place where Romeo and Juliet are real. They are real. And when I say they are real, what I mean is he happens to come across a world that has that has hmm, over time become the world that is in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And he happens to arrive there just at the time where the events of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet are, are happening. And so it just doesn't make any sense. It's one of those where you just can't think about it too much because if you think about it, it's just going to drive you crazy. And so, I mean, most of these episodes aren't great. And the the, the actress who plays Elizabeth, um, Belinda Montgomery, uh, she disappears. She's in that imp episode I was talking about with Pat Morita. And then the last two episodes, she's gone. She's gone. In one of them, uh, she's replaced by someone who just shows up and kind of starts telling, you know, saying the lines that she would say. Uh, it just, it got bad. It got bad, and it's unfortunate that it did. But you know what? <laughs> In some ways, I, I wonder, is this, is this why people are hipsters? Is this, is this why? Is this how a, a hipster feels? Because here I have this thing, this thing I've experienced that no one else knows, that no one else understands that no one else has experienced or not many people have experienced this comic book series, this TV series. I'm one of the only people. In fact, I'm the only person I know who's ever seen this show. And so am I now like, 
I mean, the hipster thing is they were into it, I guess, when before it was cool, you know, and then it became cool. And so here I am holding on to this you know, DVD in my hand right now, Man from Atlantis, um, liking it before it's cool, but also after it was cool. And when I say before it's cool, I mean way before it's cool because it's probably never, ever, ever going to be cool. And I, I recognize this. I understand this. But um, I have this thing that I've enjoyed. And I have this thing that I've, I've liked and been able to you know, latch on to. Uh, and it's not the greatest thing ever. I will watch some Man from Atlantis again in the future. I don't know when. I don't know what context. I'm not sure you know, what I know some of the things that I won't be watching, like the naked Montague, but, um, and I'll be reading the comics again. Again, I don't know when it'll be, it'll be a couple years from now. Um, but I will always, you know, they, they gave me in the comic book, the ending that they didn't give me in the TV show. And it's not a great satisfying conclusion, but it's a pretty satisfying ending where basically they, because it's episodic, there wasn't this continuing storyline other than this kind of mystery of where he came from. In this comic book, you get this thing where he's standing there and he dives into the water saying, this is not going to be my world anymore. It never, Maybe never was my world, but I'm returning to my friends on the, the cetacean. I like that. But... <clears throat> Now, uh, timing here is interesting because I haven't recorded one of these Marvel Cosmic Comics, even though, you know, they all are going to be released. Um, you know, when you're listening to them on the feed, you, you just get them one after another and, and maybe you've been waiting, maybe not. But uh, then I also compile these into omnibus episodes that go out into the regular comic book time machine feed. And those so the one that I just recorded on John Carter is going to be, you know, just moments away from this one. But there was actually a couple of weeks in between recording because of some camp uh, things that I do in the summer and I just didn't get a chance to. And then I had a, a computer breakdown and just a whole bunch of things conspired against me to do this episode. But I really wanted to get around to it. I read this a while ago and didn't get a chance to, to record about it. So now I have. And the funny thing is though, today is the day that I got a package from Amazon. And what did that package from Amazon have in it? It had in it Man from Atlantis, a novel by Patrick Duffy, star of the hit 70s TV show. And this is the a book that he's been wanting to write for a long, long time. And I, I don't know if this is something that ever since he was done with the show that it's just kind of stuck in the back of his mind. Or if this is one of those things where he's kind of trying to do a, a William Shatner. Uh, with William Shatner, it's a lot easier for him to say, what was my defining role? I want to write some books about that character and explore that character in a way no one else could because I played that character for so long. And um, he he did it. He he wrote this book and it will explore. I mean, the the back of it says dive deeper than ever before and discover the origins of the man from Atlantis. Well, I'm ready to discover the origins of the man from Atlantis. I I probably, probably will do an episode of, of Marvel Cosmic Comics, Comic Time Machine, where I'll talk about this book. Um, holding it in my hands right now, I haven't started reading it. Um, I'm finishing another book. I want to finish another book before I actually read this one. Um, 
but there's part of me that just wants to, you know, when I get done recording here, just go to bed and start reading uh, this book because it is kind of funny. I mean, it didn't come when I was done reading the comic. It didn't come when I was done with the TV show. That was a long while ago. I, I finished that, you know, like I said, two, two or three weeks ago. Uh, it came today, though, the day that I record about this comic book. And I'm holding it in my hands. Just brief overview from glancing at it. It's it's a print-on-demand type of book. At least it feels that way. It does not... It, it feels sturdy, but doesn't feel... Um, it feels a little cheap. A little cheap. Thin paper. Um, smells okay. I like the smell of it. It's, it's decent. got a decent printing press smell to it. Uh, the cover artwork is terrible. Um, it's a really poor Photoshop job of a cutout from a publicity shot of Patrick Duffy from actually the used I've seen this photo used in a, a couple different places, but it's really poorly done. I mean, I'm not a designer. I, uh, but I do some design because I have to, I could do much better than this, <laughs> much better than this. As far as the photo job, Photoshop cutout of the picture. Um, it looks like a bad green screen where, you know how, when you're watching a, uh, old green screen or, or bad green screen from a show that didn't have a lot of budget, and there's just that uh, ghosting of green around the image. That's what you have here. They did not do a very good job of that. Um, <laughs> the back has this weird kind of painting, I guess, of a hand holding a shell. And uh, that's not great. But I'm not holding that against it. I mean, I'm not going to judge a book by its cover. I'm going to judge it by its insides. Flipping through, though... Um, there's the TV guide cover that has Patrick Duffy, a painting. I wish I could see it in color. It looks really cool. Um, there's an article from TV guide from December 3rd, 1977. There's some photos that I assume were from that. And then there's some, uh, you know, set photos and publicity photos. And, um, there's a, another magazine feature article page from sci-fi heroes magazine and just a bunch of you know pictures and stuff similar actually to the spreads that they had in the first issue of the comic there's nothing related to the comic that i see in here but uh what i'm hoping for when i read this and, and this is all i don't think i'm hoping for much but because it's a novel they can do more as it was with the comic they could do a lot more with the comic and what I'm hoping for is a well-written and well-thought-out story. And I'm not, I'm not looking for great, deep uh, sci-fi literature. But I am hoping for some good, solid, fun, pulpy sci-fi. And only time will tell. I guess I just have to read it. I... <laughs> I wonder how many other people are out there, you know, holding their copy in their hand, just excited to read this next chapter from Man from Atlantis. But personally, I feel a little goofy, but I am. I am. And so all things considered, do I recommend Man from Atlantis now that I finished it? It's all done. I've already talked about what I recommend from the TV show. If you really are curious, definitely watch the TV movies, at least the first couple. They're, they're worth it. They're that sci-fi, 
Star Trek. It's in the vein of, of Star Trek. It's in the vein of um, some of the uh, live-action hero kind of things that were coming out in the 70s and, and early 80s. Uh, the comic book itself, I also recommend. You know, Give it a read. Uh, if you find it somewhere cheap, you'll if you find it somewhere for cover price, <laughs> which is thirty five cents, money well spent. I mean, when I went back in time to get this um, and spending the, my thirty five cents, money well spent. If you're spending collector's prices on this, and by collector's prices I mean inflated, you know, thirty, forty, fifty dollars, uh, don't do it. <laughs> don't don't do it. Um, and the TV series, you know, if you like the TV movies enough, go ahead, go for it with the TV series. But I, I got them on sale, as I've uh, said before. Uh, I enjoyed myself watching them. And, and what else can I ask for, you know? Uh, but I probably wouldn't have spent anything on this if I hadn't been reading the comics and hadn't been doing this this coverage. So I'm glad I was doing the coverage, which kind of pushed me into making a purchase I wouldn't have normally made. But at the same time, it's a purchase I wouldn't have normally made. So, But I also wouldn't be sitting here wondering, is this book, what will this book be for me? So I will say, you know, Patrick Duffy, if you happen to be out there listening to this episode of uh, Marvel's Cosmic Comics, um, I do comic book adaptations. You know, uh, most of my comic book career has been adapting other stories for people into comic book form. And so, you know, I'd be willing to put my head together with you to see about how we could put together a Man from Atlantis comic book, a return, you know, to the comic book medium. And I'm just throwing it out there, Mr. Duffy, if you're out there listening. Uh, if you're not out there listening, then, you know, you, you wouldn't answer this. But uh, if you are out there listening... Go ahead, send me an email, and and I'll, uh, yeah, let's let's see what we could do. Let's make some magic, right? Uh, because <laughs> I'll be honest, um, this is this is a a concept that has caught my imagination. I really do like the potential that Man from Atlantis has, and um, of course, I'm saying this now to other listeners, not to you. Uh, Mr. Patrick Duffy, who is probably not listening anyway, but uh, as I just continuing my thoughts here about Man from Atlantis, um, this this captures my imagination. The concept is is really really strong. The concept is really really interesting. The end results. Well, I, I'm holding in my hand the novel that could be, you know, a a great follow through on the potential of the concept in a way that the, the TV show didn't get to do and the comic book couldn't have done because the TV show would be the place to do it. But a 40-year-old franchise, this is, this is the, what we're going to get is this novel, and um, I'm, I'm excited to get to it. I'm excited to get to it. So our next segment is going to be Ben's Bullpen Bulletin for August 1978 that will include the ads and some of the text copy from the insides of these magazines and also a brief look at machine man and uh, devil dinosaur uh, for august 1978 uh, this is the final 
final bit. And in this part, I basically go over a couple books that are related to the Marvel sci-fi licensed books, but they aren't actually licensed. These are books that Marvel published because Marvel commissioned them in-house. And along with that, um, I also go through the ads and stuff. And, you know, this – the ads were not all that impressive. Uh, there was – Let's see what we have here. Uh, a universal bodybuilding ad. There was a park rider skateboard ad. Another grit ad. Another satisfy your meat tooth uh, slim gym ad. There was a sugar daddy, sugar baby, sugar mama contest in conjunction with Burger King. Um, the only thing notable about that, I already noted last time around, I didn't know there was a sugar mama candy. <laughs> Very curious about that. I hate sugar daddies. I think I talked about that last time around too. Um there was in one of the comics now, – now, they don't always do the same ads in, on every single page in each individual comic. And so one of the comics that I was reading this month had a an ad for superhero action figures, but they called them 12-inch or 8-inch dolls, uh, superhero dolls. But dolls, yeah, no, they're not dolls. They're action figures, action figures, sir. Um and this month again, there was that four-page Clark Bar contest where you could get, you could win like a tour of the offices and get yourself in a, a comic. And it was a, a joint thing between uh, Clark Bar and Marvel and DC. Um, there's some, you know, your various flea market pages. There's one cool ad though. It was a an ad that was divided into five parts, but the the, the page was divided like a pie, not like in, into squares or rectangles. And it was basically an ad for their five team books that they had. Uh, there was Avengers and Fantastic Four and Defenders and X-Men and Invaders. And I thought that was really cool looking. Again, this was not in every single comic that I read this month, um, but it was in in one of them. Um, the hostess ad for these issues was Spider-Man meets the home wrecker again. There was an ad for fishing kits. Uh, there was an ad uh, for Spalding. It was Dr. J and uh, uh, Rick Barry, and it was one of those comic book ads. Uh, really, there's there is not a lot going on here. The, the only other thing of note, and it's something I guess I could cover, but I'm I'm not going to because I don't think I'll be able to find this in any affordable way. But they were promoting big time their Marvel Super Special that features the Beatles, which yeah, that's that's kind of cool. I'd be interested in, in reading that. Uh, yeah, so from there, I mean, really, the only other stuff this month is is Devil Dinosaur and, and Machine Man. And so, yeah, Machine Man had some stuff going on, but it was, you know, I, I'm not enjoying Machine Man as much as I was when it was back in 2001. And I'm definitely not enjoying Machine Man as much as I enjoyed the first seven issues of, of 2001. Uh, the cover copy just mentions that the, there's a non-hero. You know, the title of the book is actually – or the, the issue, uh, the, the story is non-hero. You know, this is that Jack Kirby thing. He's, he's the writer. He's the editor. He's the illustrator. And it starts out with a street fight with plenty of exposition. And uh, Machine Man is fighting the alien robot 10-4. And 10-4, even though he's – probably not going to win this fight he has summoned his galactic fleet of friends of other you know these alien robot things and uh they're coming now 
And in the dialogue, as they're fighting, 10-4 calls Machine Man a traitor to machines, calls him Mr. Obsolete. Uh, and then they, the fight gets stopped by some soldiers, and 10-4 tricks the soldiers into thinking Machine Man is the one who's disturbing the peace, disrupting the peace. And, you know, of course, this does not – you know, Machine Man is already feeling persecuted. He's feeling put upon. Uh, and when the soldiers believe uh, that uh, Ten Four at his word – even though the soldiers take him in, take in 10-4, Machine Man, he, he won't have any of this. He's out of there. So he leaves, and he's upset, and he escapes and goes – he ends up thinking on top of a building and nearby in a nearby building. They're having a costume party, and he ends up joining them at the costume party. And they, you know, this is where we kind of have some fun with some of the ideas that I think Jack Kirby was toying with of – you know, Machine Man being the machine next door. You know, as he's he's partying and, uh, you know, people are kind of being bullies or being, you know, rude. And um, he's he's being passive aggressive with them and, and still tricking them to thinking that he's just a really athletic guy. They do call him Star Wars. And as he is interacting with them, he talks about, you know, there's a galactic fleet that's going to destroy their planet. And they're, you know, it's far out, man. But... They, there is one girl who sees through him, and the reason she sees through him is she's uh, paying attention to the news. And on the news, they've been – they put on an APB for him. And so she actually takes him to another room and turns on the TV and talks with him about what's going on and kind of believes him. And uh, then you know he has some angst and there's some melodrama about why should he help them. And and he gets frustrated. You know, he is not only going to help them, but, um, you know, he, you know, curse man that they would create someone like me that would, you know, have these angsty times. <laughs> and he, but in, in the end, he has to go. Uh, he, he knows what he has to do. And in the meantime, the fleet is preparing for an all out assault. And next issue, quick trick. I, I don't know what that is. I don't know what quick trick means. It's certainly not something that's going to get me excited about the next issue. Uh, you know, the alien fleet, that gets me a little bit excited about the next issue, but quick trick, uh, not so much. That sounds like a, a failed G.I. Joe figure. Maybe it's Quick Kick's uh, lesser known cousin or something like that. Uh, anyway, uh, the machine mail, where the letter column would be, is another essay by Jack Kirby. There's the, you know, in those essays, more and more, it's feeling like he's got these big ideas, but they just aren't quite there as far as uh, thoughtfulness. Uh, because he, he he's getting to the big idea of, you know, basically an arms race. You know, we're going to get machine men eventually. And these machine men are going to do our, our tasks, our menial tasks. But then when our neighbor does something we don't like, you know, what are we going to do when he has a machine man too? And our neighbors then have machine men that are going to be at each other's throats and we're just going to let them fight it out and it's going to be okay because they're just machine men and we'll make more right and it just you know he he has a point about the arms race he has a point about escalation uh but the point that he's kind of missing and maybe this is because back then when you would think of robots you were thinking of them in human shapes uh and, and that anthropomizes them more uh, so, you know, Android's like Future Cop, a TV show that was on back then and and different things like that where, you know, the robots looked like people. And that was the idea was they were acting like people as they looked like people. And then you also had like C-3PO and, and things like that. But you also had R2-D2 who did not look uh, very robotic. And uh, but it wasn't until, you know, later where you had them really trying to create non-humanoid looking 
robot creations that could still emote uh, in a human enough way, like short circuit, you know? Um, and so and short circuit actually kind of is this machine man model of, you know, creating these robots that could just, uh, you know, carry a bomb up, you know, the streets of Moscow, you know, without having to drop a bomb, you would drop this guy and he would just kind of crawl along on his, on his tank treads or whatever. But, um, this idea here, it's, it's a big idea and I can kind of see where he's coming from. And I just don't follow him the whole way through on this one where he's, he's talking about this, this arms race where it doesn't matter because we're just going to use them and abuse them and then discard them and, and just let them, let them fight it out or whatever. Yeah, but they're not alive, and and that's the one big thing that he's missing is those machines that he's talking about, the machines that are coming, and and, and maybe this is the problem is is his future vision uh, anthropomorphizes them and causes them to be human-ish, if not human-oid. Uh, they then, because they are, you know, sentient you know, we, we shouldn't do that. And, and I would agree with that. If they were sentient, we shouldn't just be creating them and discarding them and, you know, making them fight it out until they die. Actually, the C-3PO episode that I did on Give Me Those Star Wars, we talked about those C-3PO one shot and it was all about this idea. And it kind of does so in a, in a little bit better way, a little more sophisticated way than what Jack Kirby is is actually doing here. And I think he is trying to be sophisticated. And I think he is trying to you know, be a futurist here. Uh, it just, I don't know. It, it just feels a little too flat for me. And this whole issue, it, I, I guess the, the, the party stuff I like, uh, it's the angst, the constant angst. And maybe that's just the Marvel thing. You know, you want, you know, the thing specifically, a Marvel thing. He is angsty and just, you know, oh, I'm a monster or I'm a man, blah, blah, blah. And Machine Man is doing the same kind of thing here. But, you know, I'd like him, I'd like to see some some growth beyond that. And maybe we will. Maybe we will. I don't know. I don't know where this is going. Uh, We'll find out. I just know that Jack Kirby is going to stop working on the book soon. And when Jack Kirby stops working on the book, I'm going to stop reading the book. I'm I'm done with Machine Man after that. And I believe it happens at the same time as Devil Dinosaur. We'll find out. Although, strictly speaking, by the rules of time travel, I shouldn't know this stuff that I'm talking about right now. But, um, you know, this is me going back in time. So maybe I'm not breaking the rules because I'm going back in time from 2016 to 1978 and picking up these books. And so why wouldn't I know about it? Why wouldn't I know my target? you know, and, and, and what's happening there. But, um, anyway, as I, as I start, as I continue this, I'm not enjoying machine man as much as I thought I would each issue kind of my, my enthusiasm, uh, wanes a little bit on the flip side of that devil dinosaur with each issue, my enthusiasm, my enthusiasm, uh, grows a little bit. And, you know, it's funny that it would do that, even though I've already read this uh, machine man. I've never read before, but devil dinosaur. I have, I've, I've read this essential or the, the omnibus, I should say the hardcover omnibus before. And the issue that I just read uh, for, for this comic book time machine episode is actually one of the highlights that I remember from my reading of devil dinosaur. And the, the title of the story is journey to the center of the ants. And it's a very simple, simple story. Moon Boy has been captured by aliens. 
and he wants to know where Devil Dinosaur is. And the, the aliens are getting ready to do mean, nasty, experimental things to him. And he wonders more about where Devil Dinosaur is. And when he hears disruptions outside the alien spaceship, he wonders if that's Devil Dinosaur. And surprise, surprise, it is. Of course, he doesn't know that because he's still on the alien ship. That's Moon Boy's um, character arc for this issue. Meanwhile, Devil Dinosaur is out there with White Hair and Stonehand, two other uh, cave people, and they are getting attacked by aliens. And they lead the aliens to the Tower of Death, which is a giant, craggy, pointy tower thing. And they're, uh, they're like, inside the tower are swarms of giant ants because the Tower of Death is a giant ant hill, uh, you know, which it's, it's prehistoric times. So that, that's okay, right? That, that could happen. And they go in, they break down some walls, they bring down the Tower of Death, they bring down the ant hill, and it takes out some aliens and releases the ants on the other aliens, and uh, it wounds Devil Dinosaur. And there's our cliffhanger. Devil Dinosaur laying on the ground with the Tower of Death on him and ants going after aliens. And you know what? As simple as it is, it's just, it's, it's a visual piece. It's a, it's a visual feast. It's, it's something that I look forward to reading, but I'm not really looking forward to reading. I'm looking forward to looking. And the story carries me along from visual to visual, but I'm okay with that because the visuals are so dynamic and Machine Man has a lot of beats to get through, story beats, character beats, all these things that Jack Kirby kind of has to wade through to get to the visuals. But there's there's so much else going on that the visuals don't have an opportunity to get as awesome. Whereas with Devil Dinosaur, he, you know, he have the you have the inside of this spaceship. It can look like whatever Kirby wants it to look like, and so there is Kirby Tech and Kirby Crackle all over the place. And it's really, really cool. Uh, I am a latecomer to the appreciation of Jack Kirby. I appreciated him for who he was historically in comic books, but I didn't appreciate him for what he could do in comic books and in the comic book storytelling uh, form. And with Devil Dinosaur, with 2001, with some of Machine Man, I really do appreciate it. That said, as I said before, I'm not going to pursue a lot more from him because, you know, there's only so much of the storytelling that I can actually take. And Machine Man is kind of pushing that limit where, you know, it's kind of you got that nice balance. Uh, Machine Man pushes the limit for me, but then Devil Dinosaur pulls me back in and says, it's okay, It's okay. You're going to get Kirby stuff. It's going to be awesome. So speaking of Kirby Crackle, I've got some crackling going outside of my house right now. And I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, I did promise, if anyone cares, uh, looking for a theme for this month. I think the theme it has to do with home. Uh, that's the running through line of all the things that I read here. Uh, Machine Man is trying to find a home. Um, Devil Dinosaur and Moon Boy's home has been invaded. Star Wars, Luke, Leia, Han, and Chewie, and the droids, they helped some people re retake their home. And man from Atlantis was searching for his home. Uh, human fly 
uh, Human Fly, uh, yeah, his, his manager found a new home. It was a work home, but it was a home nonetheless. Um, trying to think here for Godzilla. He's protecting home, but I think home is the through line here. Oh, oh, of course. John Carter, Warlord of Mars. He went home. It all it all comes together. Home is where these comics led us. And I returned home, read the comics, and now I'm going to put them back in the vault. And I'm going to go back in time. One more trip, this time to see books that are going to be cover date. What is it, September 1978? Looking forward to that. Uh, there is a special thing coming up. John Carter, Warlord of Mars, annual number two. will get its own episode. Last time I interviewed Marv Wolfman, I don't know if I'm going to be doing another interview for this or if I'll just try and find a guest to come on and talk about John Carter, Warlord of Mars. But that's that's coming up. And other things coming up, I'm hoping to do some more coverage of Star Wars modern graphic novels. And I'm also looking at the modern iterations of ROM and Micronauts. Thinking about covering those. Not sure. Those fireworks are getting louder and louder, and it's time for me to, to turn this thing off. So I just want to thank you for listening and, and thank those uh, people who have contacted me and said that they were listening. I appreciate that. Those kind words and really any words, <laughs> kind or not, just to show that someone's listening, uh, are appreciated. And if you would like to get a hold of me, you can just by contacting me at feedback at Comic Book Time Machine. Uh, until next time, I just have to say thank you again for listening and Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, what Ifs and Else Worlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time.